Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. Today, December 5th, 2022, we host a post-oral argument courthouse steps on 303 Creative versus Alanis, which was argued earlier today before the court. My name is Kayla Kleiss, and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call, as the Federalist Society takes no position on any particular legal or public policy issues. In the interest of time, we'll keep our introductions brief, but if you'd like to know more about any of our speakers, you can access their full bios at fedsoc.org. Today, we are fortunate to have with us as a moderator, Professor Michael Domino, who is a professor of law at Widner University Commonwealth Law School, where he teaches courses related to constitutional law, election law, federal courts, statutory interpretation, and criminal law. He's the author of a casebook on election law, has written widely, especially on the election of judges, and as of earlier this year, he was appointed to serve on the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania's Appellate Court Procedural Rules Committee. I'll leave it to him to introduce the rest of our panel. One last thing, throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speakers will have access to them when we get to that portion of today's webinar. With that, thank you all for being with us today. Professor Domino, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you to the Federalist Society for hosting this event. Thank you to our, uh, our wonderful panelists. I have the great honor not only of being today's moderator, but also of being the chair of the Federalist Society's Free Speech and Election Law Practice Group executive committee. It is that executive committee and the practice group as a whole that is uh, that is primarily sponsoring this uh, this event, which is about 303 Creative versus Alanis, case that was argued before the Supreme Court of the United States this morning and early this afternoon. The, um, the case is a kind of uh, reprise of Masterpiece Cake Shop, which many of you will remember from a few years ago. Colorado has an anti-discrimination uh, law which prohibits places of public accommodation, including some businesses, from discriminating on various grounds, including sexual orientation. 303 Creative is a, uh, a web design firm that, among other things, produces websites relating to uh, the promotion of, of wedding ceremonies. Uh, 303 Creative has asked for, uh, for a declaratory judgment in, uh, that would declare the Colorado statute unconstitutional as applied to 303 Creative um, because 303 Creative is worried about the possibility that the statute might be used to require 303 Creative to create a website promoting a same-sex marriage. The woman who runs 303 Creative is opposed to same-sex marriage on religious grounds and believes that it is her First Amendment right to refuse to use her creative talents to uh, advertise a wedding that she believes would be invalid or contrary to her beliefs. Today, we have two wonderful panelists to discuss this issue. Each of them will give an opening statement, and then we will have a back and forth and time for questions. The first speaker is Professor Andrew Koppelman, who is the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law. He's the professor. He 
requires that I state by courtesy of political science and the philosophy department affiliated faculty at the Northwest at Northwestern University. He received the Walter Hart Award for Research Excellence from Northwestern, the Hart Dworkin Award in Legal Philosophy from the Association of American Law Schools, and the Edward S. Corwin Prize from the American Political Science Association. He has written more than 100 scholarly articles and eight books, most recently, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. And you can find his recent work at andrewkoppelman.com. Our second speaker, Casey Maddox, is a member of the Free Speech and Election Law Practice Group Executive Committee with me. He is also the Vice President for Legal and Judicial Strategy at Americans for Prosperity and a Senior Fellow for Free Speech at Stand Together Trust, where he advocates for a judiciary that defends the rule of law and protects individual liberty especially the freedoms of speech and assembly. For over 15 years before joining STT and AFP, Casey's legal career focused on defending the First Amendment rights of students, faculty, families, healthcare workers, and religious organizations, representing parties in 35 states and all levels, including at the Supreme Court. He has also testified frequently before congressional and state legislative committees. He has a JD from Boston College and a BA in government and history from UVA and he clerked for Justice Champ Lyons of the Alabama Supreme Court. You can find him on Twitter at, at Casey Maddox underscore. Professor Koppelman, whenever you're ready, you may begin. Thank you very much for your participation today. All right, so you uh, know the basic facts about uh, Lori Smith. Uh, she uh, wants to expand her business to include custom-designed wedding websites. Uh, there's some ambiguity about what custom-designed means, uh, whether it means uh, bespoke from scratch or whether it means just plug and play where she inserts uh, particular details. That might or might not matter based on today's uh, oral argument. Uh, she wants to uh, be able to say on her own promotional website that she doesn't design sites for same-sex weddings. And Colorado law bans businesses that are open to the public from discriminating against gay people or announcing their intent to do so. Uh, in terms of compelled speech uh, doctrine, uh, her case has some plausibility. It's settled First Amendment law that you can't be compelled to say what you don't believe. The Supreme Court said that in 1943 in the flag salute case. Uh, and so uh, it is possible to decide the case on the ground that she is being required personally to craft a message with which she disagrees. There was an earlier case in another circuit in which a company that made custom videos was told by the state that uh, if they enter the wedding video business, their videos must depict same and opposite sex weddings in an equally positive light. And that really looks like the state uh, compelling someone to mouth a viewpoint in a way that was even more intrusive and demoralizing than in the flag salute case, uh, because the Smith in this case won't just have to recite prescribed words, but exercise her own judgment, creating a message on pain of being deemed discriminatory if her work product is judged insufficiently enthusiastic. But that argument isn't conclusive because uh, the uh, Equally intrusive judgments are sometimes made in breach of contract cases that uh, you uh, 
what you did in a contract case uh, under performance was deliberately of lower performance uh, and uh, that uh, can be uh, deemed pretextual in order to force a lower price. Uh, if so, courts scrutinize the quality of performance and contracts all the time. Uh, the uh, now, the, I think the key question in this case, and what gives me pause about the compelled speech argument, is the claim that she is an artist. And artists, this is uh, a word in the question granted by the Supreme Court. The court is specifically hearing the question, as the court articulated it, whether applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or say, stay silent violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Well, who is an artist and for what purposes? And the difficulty here, I think, is made clear by the earlier decision that the court avoided involving a cake maker. Ordinarily, food preparation is not regarded as artistic production, but this particular baker took unusual care in crafting his cakes. And so he claimed, and a number of the justices on the present court agreed, that that made him artistic. Uh, so the really puzzling question presented by uh, this case is what counts as uh, an artistic production. And the danger in this case is that the court is either going to leave deep uncertainty about which businesses are sufficiently artistic to warrant exemptions from anti-discrimination law. Is a flower shop expressive? Uh, you know, is a bakery expressive? Uh, it's uh, really uncertain. Uh, there is a proposal that's been made and was noted in oral argument by professors Eugene Volek and Dale Carpenter. Uh, they think that expression should be protected if it falls within a generally expressive medium, a medium that has historically and traditionally been recognized as expressive. And so they are supporting the web designer in this case because they think that website design uh, is expressive, writing is expressive, photography is expressive. Uh, but they were on the other side of the cake case. Uh, now, the danger in this case, I think, is that the right wing of the court is really more concerned about protecting conservative Christians than it is about speech. An awful lot of them really wanted to rule in favor of the baker in the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop case, uh, but uh, this divides the world in a different way uh, because there are lots of religious vendors who object to facilitating same-sex weddings. Some of them don't work in expressive media, florists and bakers, and the moral reality is that all of them, whether they're expressive or not, conscientiously object to participating in a ceremony that they don't regard as a real wedding and free speech law treats them differently. Uh, so, though we're in by focusing on Masterpiece Cake Shop because there was a free speech argument that was made uh, in that case and a uh, separate opinion by Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch. Thomas argued that uh, the baking of wedding cakes is inherently expressive. A wedding cake communicates a basic wedding message of uh, celebration of a wedding. And 
by this logic, the baker had a right to refuse to sell a pre-made wedding cake that he already had on his shelf. And similarly here, even if the web designer doesn't use any expressive skills at all, just has a template and plugs in the names of the parties, that is going to have expressive significance. And it's true that these actions have some communicative significance, but so does almost everything that human beings do. The reason why silent movies tell stories is because you can understand just by watching people's behavior what it is that they are expressing. And the court rejected the view that uh, anytime you engage in an action that tends to express an idea, you are engaging in, a, in speech. If baking is speech because the baker considers himself an artist, then almost everything is speech and the First Amendment creates a presumption of anarchy. And it's been settled for more than half a century that government can regulate conduct that communicates if its interest is unrelated to the suppression of the message. And the impact on the communication is no more than is necessary to the government's purpose. And discrimination laws easily satisfy those requirements. And so if you rely on that doctrine, then it's pretty clear that Colorado ought to win. Uh, so uh, the puzzle in this case is whether the court, uh, I think that the court is inclined to rule in favor of 303 Creative. The challenge in this case is, can they rule in favor of 303 Creative in a way that doesn't unleash chaos, either by having a category of artistic speech whose boundaries are deeply uncertain? Maybe if you take the bullet carpenter line, you'll be able to develop them over time. But it does create enormous uncertainty in anti-discrimination law. Or if we are going to talk about you know, any conduct that and and I think even if you adopt that perspective, then it licenses quite a lot of uh, discrimination. One hypothetical that came up in the oral argument is you imagine a photographer who says, you know, I am going to uh, do traditional Christmas photography from back in the 40s. You know, it's a wonderful life photography. And the way that I interpreted that, the families who posed for such photographs were white. And so I'm only going to photograph white people. Well, it is bespoke artistic production. Is that permitted under uh, a free speech argument? Uh, even under the Volek Carpenter argument, that seems to be permitted. And then if we expand it to anything that conveys a message, which is what you have to do if you are going to adopt a principle that's going to help the baker, then really all bets are off and it's very hard to tell what is left of anti-discrimination law. Because generally when people discriminate, they're conveying a message. They don't like the message that they would be sending to the world if they engaged in non-discriminatory conduct. So that's the challenge for the court. And I, I don't know what they're going to do. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting and, uh, and quite helpful remarks. Thank you. Mr. Maddox. Well, I will um, uh, we'll, we'll try not to uh, to repeat too many of the facts. I'll add some more, hopefully, and uh, and maybe point out some places where I, I think there are some uh, some clarification of some facts. But um, I want to try to spend most of my time on the argument and and what I think were some of the most interesting things that kind of developed during the argument, uh, the questions that the that the court was grappling with. But um, just to back up a little bit again, 
Lori Smith's uh, a graphic artist, website designer, uh, sole owner of 303 Creative. Uh, and so she had worked for larger companies, decided she wanted to go into business for herself and start uh, creating websites uh, for causes that, that she believed in. And so uh, she doesn't just do uh, wedding websites, or she's not proposing, for example, to just do wedding websites. She does uh, veterans, animal welfare causes, uh, church mission uh, organization websites, a lot of different things that are uh, sort of within uh, the uh, her her interests uh, and aligned with aligned with what she believes. Um, she's also a Christian and believes that marriage uh, is between one man and one woman. And her contract for services notes that she reserves the right uh, to only create content consistent with her beliefs broadly, right? So not just in this context, but but more broadly. Um, and so uh, according to the, the this case actually comes to the court via stipulated facts uh, from the trial court. They had originally about six years ago moved for a preliminary injunction. The district court said, no, I'm not deciding your preliminary injunction. I want summary judgment. I want you to stipulate the facts. They stipulated the facts. Uh, and that's what we are working on now at the Supreme Court is uh, largely a, a set of stipulated facts that were uh, were essentially pushed for by the trial court. Um, and here we are. And they, they are quite interesting uh, in some of the things that uh, that are stipulated. So according to the stipulated facts, uh, Lori decides which commissions to accept based on what the message is, not who's requesting it. Um, Colorado stipulated that she uh, works with clients regardless of race, creed, sexual orientation, gender, sex, uh, uh, any of those protected categories. And she's designed graphics and created websites for both religious and non-religious groups advocating for causes that align with her beliefs, um, regardless of identity. She has LGBT uh, clients that she works with in other contexts. Uh, and all of her websites include a statement that it's designed by 303 Creative, as any uh, smart business owner would do. Um, Colorado agrees that all of her uh, graphic and website designs are expressive in nature, that designing a website. So the, this kind of uh, at least the, the beginning question of is the website um, uh, website design expressive? Colorado had stipulated that, in fact, uh, there is expression here in uh, website design. It involves, first of all, words actually put on online, but also code um, that is used to uh, to create a website and that that itself uh, is also expressive. Um, Obviously, we know about the, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act and sort of the background uh, on it, so I won't go into it uh, too much. One of the, the things, there's also a, a separate publication clause that's at issue uh, here as well that actually, I don't believe, came up at all uh, in the argument today. So you have both the, the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act prohibition on discrimination in services provided, and then Colorado also says, and you can't uh, publicly state that uh, services will be declined or that an individual's patronage or presence is unwelcome, objectionable, unacceptable, or undesirable because of their status. And so that's important because, uh, at least uh, according to the stipulated facts, not only would she not be able to decline services for a uh, same-sex website to create a, a website for a same-sex wedding, but also can't post on her website that I will not uh, create uh, websites for a same-sex wedding. And so there's kind of a, a separate uh, sort of uh, advance, like a, a prior restraint, essentially, uh, in that sense, or at least as part of the argument. That really came up, I don't think, uh, Professor Koppelman may tell me I'm 
uh, I was was dozing off during that part of the argument. But I don't think the uh, the publication clause issues themselves actually came up for for all of the two and a half hours or whatever it was that the argument was today. Um, so uh, the other thing that was was kind of interesting to me once you got to the Tenth Circuit, one of the the things that you would have noted from any of the conversation about this case was really the breadth of the 10th Circuit's holding. It appeared to be pretty novel uh, in that the court acknowledged, the 10th Circuit acknowledged that this was expression, uh, that strict scrutiny applied because uh, this was, uh, Colorado would be compelling Lori Smith, 303 Creative, to engage in expressive activity. But it was that exact, uh, the, the fact that it was Lori Smith's 303 Creative's expression and the uniqueness of that expression that actually caused the 10th Circuit to say uh, that uh, there was no least restrictive means of the state accomplishing its end of prohibiting discrimination here than to compel Lori Smith and 303 Creative to provide uh, the services for a same-sex wedding. I think there were, uh, according to the record, there were about a hundred different um, uh, entities, uh, individuals or companies in Denver alone that could design websites for a same-sex wedding. And of course, when you're thinking about website design, it could be, uh, you know, it could be someone in Chile who's designing uh, a website for your wedding, and it it wouldn't make much of a difference to anyone else. So it's probably even a broader market than that. Uh, but the court rejected that and said, no, that's not a least restrictive means. The the fact that other people might be able to provide these services uh, would not be a uh, doesn't sort of change the state's interest here in compelling her uh, because of what they've what's been referred to as the monopoly of one argument. She has uh, a monopoly over her own services. Only she designs websites like Lori Smith. Therefore, the state's interest can only be satisfied if Lori Smith specifically is required to provide those services. Um, interestingly, I don't think the, the court spent very little, if any time today, uh, in neither side. I think that neither Colorado nor the, uh, the, the uh, attorney for the U.S., spent very much time at all attempting to defend the 10th Circuit's decision and that theory of the case, uh, maybe sort of impliedly doing so, um, but without actually getting to uh, to defending the 10th Circuit's decision itself. So a few things that stood out to me, or a few more things uh, I'll say, that stood out to me from the argument. <clears throat> One, uh, there was this question about rightness coming into the case, because you have a pre-enforcement First Amendment challenge uh, from, like I said, from six years ago where uh, Lori Smith was uh, would, brought this case uh, back then. Is this ripe? Uh, and uh, that really wasn't a major issue in the case, at least as ripeness itself was concerned. Um, and I'll, I'll get to in a moment here to how that issue really came up, but I don't think there, there are probably any votes uh, for um, or at least it's not obvious that there are votes for actually deciding that the case is just not ripe and we need to, to wait on uh, Colorado to enforce the law against uh, Lori Smith uh, to move forward. Um, Justice Thomas asked about it first. Uh, Kristen Wagner, I think, addressed the question pointing for, for ADF, uh, pointing to the stipulations in the court's case law on pre-enforcement pre First Amendment challenges. Um, but it did sort of come up later in the argument. I think the, the place where that issue comes up in the case um, is in basically uh, where Justice Gorsuch is pointing out um, that, uh, well, Justice Kagan 
uh, and uh, and Sotomayor are raising the question, but what about a plug and play website, for example? Uh, and what would happen if what we were really dealing with was not custom designed websites, but simply uh, a website that someone would create that's, you know, uh, sort of a, a template website. I will sell, sell you the template and you produce your own website uh, sort of thing. Um, and so they're raising that question. I think Kristen Wagner's response to that was to go back to the stipulations and say, look, according to the stipulations, all of the websites she creates are, uh, are custom websites. So it would sort of seem to exclude the plug and play uh, situation. But then the argument is, well, but the relief requested is really beyond that because the relief requested uh, from 303 Creative would ask for uh, a decision that she can't be compelled to perform or to create websites for same-sex uh, weddings. And Justice Gorsuch, I think, dealt with that essentially saying, look, people can ask for whatever they want to ask for, and we decide what we want to give them. Um, and so I, I think that's how that sort of ripeness related question gets dealt with. Um, I think what it probably means is that um, you don't end up seeing a decision in this case that says as to all uh, disputes that could possibly relate to a same-sex wedding, that uh, there's a First Amendment right not to uh, to provide that content. Um, I think what it probably means is they've sort of pushed that aside and left that for another day and just decided the case based on the stipulations about custom design uh, that was at issue here. I'll say too, I think in the, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, that case also um, had the, it was a, a custom design element. The actual circumstance in which it came up wasn't a uh, an off-the-shelf cake or a pre-designed cake. There were uh, requests for custom custom design, but that uh, that issue, to the extent was any any unclarity of in in that question in Masterpiece Cake Shop, I think the stipulations hopefully uh, sort of pinpoint that question in this case. Um, so I think the um, uh, the second uh, thing that came up that was a, a major issue, I think, uh, in the argument: whose speech are we really talking about here? Um, a lot of debate on this point. Court spent uh, a lot of time discussing this. Justice Kagan uh, probably most notably pursued that line of inquiry and seemed somewhat concerned at one point, uh, maybe surprising some people. Uh, what would happen if there was, uh, if there was, she, she was sort of pointing to uh, the idea that, well, you know, most people would understand that this is about the couple's story. It's not about uh, the designer's story. Uh, and said, you know, what if we had uh, or, or noted that she thought it might be more challenging if you were looking at a website uh, that included a line, something like God bless this union or something like that, where it would seem to imply that there was someone outside the couple that was uh, offering commentary on the on the website. Um, again, that seems to be sort of fighting the, the stipulation uh, in, in my mind a little bit, but uh, but it was interesting that that she was raising the possibility from Justice Kagan that maybe there actually are circumstances here where the Colorado law, if it was applying in that context, it would have given her her pause. Uh, but she seems to think that that's uh, not necessarily before the, the court, or at least that the relief requested would go beyond uh, that circumstance. Uh, Kristen Wagner had a, a, what I thought was a really great line on this, uh, that the Pulitzer goes to, to the photographer, not the subject. Um, it's always great to have those lines in oral arguments that seem to sum up your entire argument in, in one line. I thought that was really interesting. Um, 
One of the other key questions is race different. Um, court spent uh, so many of the hypotheticals, uh, and there were a lot of hypotheticals um, in this argument. So many of the hypotheticals came back to worries uh, about what might happen if someone made similar arguments, but about interracial weddings uh, or other contexts uh, that were more race-based. Um, and I think it really highlights two different approaches to these questions from, uh, from 303 Creative and then from the two government defendants. Kristen Wagner explained why, in her view, most of the hypotheticals were inapplicable um, to what they were requesting here. Uh, she po pointed out that at one point, it's highly unlikely that someone would serve African-Americans, uh, would be serving African-Americans in other contexts, but not provide creative services for an interracial marriage, for example. Um, that that's probably not going to be a, a very frequent occurrence, but she also returned to the idea that the answer to this difficult, those difficult questions can't be compelling speech. Uh, Wagner's approach grants that it's it's possible that in some hypothetical, the First Amendment may protect behavior that's uh, odious, but that doesn't mean the First Amendment needs to change to adjust to make sure that those things aren't happening. And I thought Olson and Fletcher uh, argued that despite the stipulations, and again, the stipulations on the, uh, the, the custom uh, designed uh, and the fact that, uh, that 303 serves people regardless of status, they said, despite that, that stipulation, um, the fact that 303 Creative doesn't do same-sex wedding websites uh, is itself status-based. Uh, so Fletcher, for example, said, that, said this most clearly, that one can't define their religious objection in a way that discriminates on the basis of a status. Uh, so basically, uh, the exclusions of same-sex marriage, even by people otherwise providing services to LGBT persons, is necessarily status-based, that if you have identified your, your objection uh, as about same-sex uh, weddings, that it doesn't matter what else you're doing in any other context, that itself is, uh, is a status-based exclusion. That would seem to me to raise some content-based, uh, that sort of uh, uh, a test like that would seem to me to become a content-based uh, speech rule. Uh, Justice Alito, uh, asked at one point in Obergefell, did the court say that race and religious views about same-sex marriage are the same? It was obviously uh, an obvious to, to Kristen Wagner, so it was a, a pretty softball question uh, with an obvious answer. No, the court had uh, said that as to same-sex weddings, that uh, honorable people have different views. And then to uh, General Olson from Colorado, he asked later on, but Justice Kennedy have said there were honorable people who were opposed to interracial marriage. Uh, and uh, Mr. Olson said no. Uh, and I, it was a, uh, a bit of a sort of an end of the uh, end of the conversation uh, on that particular point. Just how broad can public accommodations laws be? Um, what is the, the scope of public accommodations laws? Uh, both Colorado and the U.S. seem to uh, throw political belief under the bus. Um, that came up several times. ADF has pointed out in its briefing uh, and in below that uh, an increasing number of jurisdictions prohibit political discrimination. Um, and that uh, sort of the, uh, you know, the implications of uh, public accommodations law and its interaction with the First Amendment is going to have to apply in those circumstances. Colorado and the U.S. seem to basically say uh, that uh, 
adding political beliefs uh, is not something that is uh, sort of historical uh, and should be looked at differently than the categories uh, that are, are presently there, um, which I thought was uh, uh, an interesting step. It would leave you with sort of the situation where uh, someone's religious objection would receive lesser protection potentially than someone's uh, political objection, for example. Um, the political objection would be sort of protected over religious objection, which is also a, a sort of an interesting First Amendment uh, question. <laughs> a lot of discussion about Fair v. Rumsfeld. Uh, that was uh, sort of the main case that uh, General Fletcher, uh, Deputy uh, SG, relied upon. Uh, most interestingly, sort of took it straight to uh, to the Chief Justice, who had written Rum, uh, Fair v. Rumsfeld uh, and was was uh, sort of pushing the Chief Justice um, on the application of that case. Uh, that's a case where uh, the federal government was trying to compel law schools to uh, permit military recruiters on campus. Um, and so uh, the objection there was uh, the law schools objected uh, to having these military recruiters because this is a time when uh, the don't ask, don't, don't tell policy was still uh, was still in play. And in fair, the, the court had said uh, that simply the uh, the availability of open rooms, uh, leaving the, the rooms available was not itself uh, expressive activity that wouldn't communicate any message. <laughs> but then there was a lot of discussion about the fact that there were other uh, other pieces of that where, for example, uh, the law schools would uh, would email uh, students and let them know this is where the military recruiters will be and that kind of thing, which of course gets you right back to the question, well, what if it's just a, a wedding website that says, um, you know, uh, this couple is getting married, this is the time and date, and this is where they're registered, that sort of bare bones website, then all you're really doing is just telling people time and date, sort of like the military recruiters uh, in that circumstance. But again, I think that sort of fights against the um, the, uh, the stipulations in this case uh, that are around custom design of sort of celebratory websites, not the, the kind of plug and play examples. And then I'll give one last point. I had written a piece uh, before this argument about um, kind of the, the three potentially big non-discrimination laws that are uh, could come before the court this year in very different contexts. One is uh, this Colorado non-discrimination law. The other two are Texas and Florida, which have employed non-discrimination laws, but uh, also against um, people in the uh, online sphere, but in a very different context. Uh, and so uh, Texas and Florida had created laws, for example, that uh, prohibit uh, social media platforms from discriminating on the basis of political beliefs online. Uh, and there were a couple of, of interesting points, I think, and I wrote a piece on this at, at Real Clear that was up this past week. I think there were some uh, interesting points um, for that uh, possibility. Uh, if I were social media platforms watching this case, I would uh, at least be somewhat concerned uh, about some of what I heard today. Uh, at one point, General Fletcher indicated that it would violate the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act for a web, or actually, I'm sorry, it's General Olson, it would violate the CADA for a website 
uh, hosting service to decline to host sites created by 303 Creative uh, because of, uh, of her religious beliefs, um, which frankly sounds not entirely unlike the arguments being made by Texas and Florida um, in support of their own anti-discrimination laws uh, against the social media platforms. General uh, Fletcher at one point in response to hypothetical dealing with online dating services, um, said there isn't a First Amendment interest in the action of such a service to connect to people. What he's talking about there is an algorithm, uh, that there's not a First Amendment interest in uh, a, uh, a essentially a social media platform connecting to people uh, via an algorithm. Uh, that sounds a lot like the Tamna and, and Google cases that'll actually be heard by the Supreme Court later this year. And is a major question, um, you know, to, to, to what extent do these online platforms actually have a First Amendment interest uh, in their uh, in their speech, and does that speech include things like the the algorithms that they've created uh, to try to um, promote content or connect uh, connect content to people that they think will will want to hear that content? Um, and then finally, at one point, uh, I think General Olson said that publishing houses, if a if if they were a public accommodation, would also lose um, under uh, under their argument. And Justice Kavanaugh. Gave him another chance and said, are you sure about that? Um, and he sort of backtracked and said, well, I, I don't think that publishing houses uh, would actually be public accommodations under this law. But I think it really highlighted uh, kind of the, the, the fact that uh, the way the court decides this case will not just impact sort of a small group of uh, Jack Phillips and other kind of Christian uh, wedding vendors. There are going to be implications for uh, not just sort of public accommodations laws we we typically think about them, uh, but for a growing number of ways the government is looking to try to regulate speech or speech adjacent activity. All right, thank you very much. Um, before we get to any of my questions or any of your questions, um, Professor Koppelman and Mr. Maddox, if you have any uh, discussion questions for each other, questions about each other's statements or just other kind of points you want to raise, uh, uh, I'll give you this opportunity right now. So uh, I guess I want to figure out the uh, significance of the stipulation that uh, the uh, web design is expressive in nature, which uh, seems to point to something narrower than the relief requested. And Gorsuch is right. The court doesn't have to give the relief requested, which seems to be broader than activities that are defined as expressive in nature. As I said uh, before, the uh, puzzle in this case is you know, what counts as expressive in nature. You can stipulate whatever you want. You can say, you know, well, I uh, have a right to exclude those people who I believe to be infested by demons. But the idea that courts are going to have to decide in future cases what it means to be infested by demons is uh, just uh, not a workable rule. So uh, I think the deep puzzle in here is what are the boundaries of what counts as expressive in nature? Uh, is it uh, the intentions of the producer? Is it the amount of care that goes on? Uh, if Ollie's Barbecue declines to serve blacks, but uh, the cook in Ollie's Barbecue for each individual customer arranges the ribs in a custom pattern based on the geometrical pattern that is brought to mind by to the chef. Does that mean that Ollie's Barbecue is expressive in nature now and can exclude African-Americans? 
Uh, you know, what really worries me about this is the malleability of this category. And uh, you know, so the uh, stipulation is no help with that. Yeah, I think you, you have that stipulation, but you also have the, the stipulation on the, 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 uh, the fact that the, the websites are themselves custom. And I think that's, uh, but I, I mean, I agree with you that in, in the sense- Lots of work is bespoke. You know, if I'm an auto mechanic, well, everything I do is bespoke. Everything I do as an auto mechanic is custom to what's wrong with this particular engine. Lots of goods and services are custom in that sense. I mean, there was a, a question at one point uh, where it was suggested that, you know, there it, it's not just bakers and florists and, and photographers, but there are also people like, you know, the caterers who, who are just sort of making the chicken and- uh, the chair people and things like that. And I think Kristen Wagner went and said, well, I'm not coming back here with a case about chairs. Um, and she, 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 was, she was limiting, limiting her argument, I think, to, uh, to the, to this context. I think the other thing too, about the, uh, you know, this, this question about, well, what the relief requested doesn't quite match the free speech argument. I think part of the answer to that question is that, uh, there were both free exercise, uh, which would mm -hmm. potentially provide for a broader but narrower group of people protected, but a broader um, uh, relief potentially. Uh, and that uh, the court had, had denied the cert petition on that question presented. You're limited to the to the free speech question. I think that helps to answer the question. Well, why the mismatch? Well, the mismatch is because you have this question presented and a, a case with multiple questions. Uh, they could get you to those other issues. I mean, I think, yes, there are, you know, there no doubt there are going to be, um, you know, more edge cases or more challenging questions that could potentially arise under this. I think basically what that, what that gets us to in this case is uh, the court thinking about those things while it's creating the decision in support of 303 Creative, not causing the court to say, well, we can't reach a decision in, in support of 303 Creative based on the stipulations, based on, on what we actually have in front of us. Um, but how do we, uh, in doing that, not sort of uh, invite those broader circumstances? I will say too, though, it's it's been noteworthy that, you know, for the most part, these cases have been going on for, you know, for uh, what, 12, 15 years now, I think, litigation around these specific issues. And most of these stay in the realm of the hypothetical about what if rather than the cases that are actually being filed about the, you know, well, I don't want to make, I don't want to make fried chicken uh, in this circumstance or things like that. Those cases aren't actually occurring. So, which I think will probably be noteworthy to the court. It'd be a different thing if you have hypotheticals that look a lot like real life circumstances, um, but the, that's, uh, we're not having those circumstances arise. And I think that the court won't be oblivious to that reality. Professor, I want to raise a question that you've brought up a couple of times about the the definition of artistic or expressive. Basically, the the how speechy is the conduct kind of question. And the, to what extent do you think the court needs to expand on the test that's already there? The, the Spence versus Washington test that we ask whether the the, the speaker or the person engaging in the conduct intended to convey a message and whether that message or some related kind of message would have been understood by the reasonable audience member. Is that not sufficient to resolve the question of uh, of how expressive 
the web design, the flower arranging, et cetera, is? Well, the doctrinal context is that Spence triggers O'Brien, and the question there is, is the state's uh, interest unrelated to the expression of ideas, which seems to be the case here. It's a general anti-discrimination law. They weren't even thinking about cases like this. So if we go down that route, then the state loses. This is, uh, I'm sorry, then the web designer loses. What's being proposed here is an exception to O'Brien, where some conduct that's regulated by the anti-discrimination law is deemed expressive enough that it is an exception to O'Brien. It's very different from the Florida and Texas cases where the statutes right on their face are targeting speech. They're targeting speech and nothing but speech and saying we're regulating the content of these websites. That's not the statute in Colorado. Well, but that's, you know, in, in Florida and Texas, this is one of the interesting things. In Florida and Texas, they would say, no, 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 no. That's uh, all we're regulating there is conduct. Uh, and that, you know, is the, the Fifth Circuit opinion uh, from Judge Oldham repeatedly said that this isn't speech, this is censorship. Um, we're not regulating the, the platform's uh, uh, speech, all we're doing is telling the platforms that you can't remove people. Um, and, you know, I think it's that uh, there's a similarity, I think, in the this isn't speech, this is censorship, this isn't speech, or this isn't speech, mm -hmm. this is discrimination in Colorado. I think there's a similar sort of uh, redefining the expressive activity as something else in order to claim that it's outside the purview of the First Amendment. If that's right, Miami Herald is wrongly decided. Uh, newspapers get to control their conduct. And when they won't publish your op-ed, that's not deemed to be censorship. Um, and this is regulating the content of what is on the website. If a website uh, wants to be a website that you can rely on not to have COVID and misinformation and racism, the website gets to exclude those things. I could the Real question is whether, and the question is going to be litigated, is whether those statutes themselves violate the First Amendment. No, so I think the Miami Herald case is actually a good example. So, I mean, if you look at the the briefing uh, from uh, the in three hundred three Creative and in the the two Net Choice cases, uh, the the two cases that are passing through uh, through all of those cases are Miami Herald and Hurley. So the, the platforms are pointing to Hurley and saying, Hurley protects us, Hurley protects us. And, and similarly, you've got 303 Creative pointing to Miami Herald and saying, we're protected by, by Miami Herald, which is why I think there are some interesting sort of uh, First Amendment uh, bedfellows in this case. I think that certainly there are, di there are differences between uh, what Colorado is doing and what New York and Texas are doing. Um, I do think it's, it's probably likely that if you were uh, uh, the you know, if you were Mark Zuckerberg, if you were Elon Musk, um, hopefully someone was paying attention to this argument today, because I think if 303 Creative loses, there will at least probably be language in that opinion that would be really challenging, that you'd need to have to figure out how do we make a First Amendment argument if this non-discrimination law is going to say um, that we don't get to make, that 303 Creative doesn't get to make these decisions in website design in Colorado. I think they would have to be very worried. Uh, if that was the result, they can they can find ways to make it work. Elon Musk has a lot of money. He has good lawyers. But Casey, do you think the just picking up on uh, on Professor Koppelman's point? Do you um, do you agree with him that the the interest of the of Colorado here is unrelated to the suppression of free expression? So that that what's being asked for is a kind of exception to O'Brien. I mean, look the the. 
part of the problem for Colorado, I, I don't think it's unrelated, um, uh, quite frankly, but but it, I mean, part of the problem for Colorado is also that when you have a uh, private right of action as they do in Colorado, to say, is it unrelated to, the, to uh, you know, to uh, uh, suppression of speech, there are a whole lot of people whose interest is very much uh, related to the suppression of speech and are going around looking for opportunities to try to use this law in order to suppress free speech, right? So uh, I think that factors into the question, uh, or at least it, it should. If you've got a, a regime that's basically uh, making it possible for people to go target speech. But I mean, I think the, the, the application of it here, I think the in this particular case, I think what the 10th Circuit said is, you know, well, we're not asking, you know, 303 Creative isn't asking for uh, the CADA to be declared unconstitutional in toto. It's saying where it applies in this expressive context. Um, it's obviously very, very important. It's relatively limited in the overall scope uh, of this act, but I think it's a very important piece of that. But I think that's all the court really has to decide in this uh, exp expressive context where you're actually compelling. Uh, you know, uh, custom design, for example, uh, and it's it's clearly expressive as the Tenth Circuit uh, has has determined, and the stipulations I think would seem to indicate. Uh, the only thing I'll say in response to that is that it's true of all of tort law. Every last bit of tort law empowers private parties to discriminate. I can say that, you know, I'm only going to bring tort suits against African-Americans or against Jews or against Republicans. And a private party is empowered to do that by tort law. So that if this is an objection to this statute, it's an, it's an objection to all of tort law. We've gotten a bunch of questions from viewers about the public accommodations laws. And if I can kind of combine the themes from some of them and, and ask a, uh, a new question, I'm not sure whether combining those questions and asking a new one would be sufficiently artistic and creative as to give us the cover. As Very artistic and creative. I yes, admire it. Yes. Um, but now, I'm sure that Colorado's response to a lot of hypotheticals, well, could you force this person to, to could you force the, the Jewish speech writer to write a speech for the Klansman and that kind of thing? The, uh, a lot of the responses in the actual case are, well, that person wouldn't be covered by public accommodations law. But suppose that we have um, that we have a state that that dispenses with the formality of calling it a public accommodations law and just says that we require all businesses to be open to all comers, something like that. So um, one of the questions asks, could a a Catholic advertising agency be required by law to place advertisements for an abortion clinic? Then another person asked about lawyers could you require lawyers to be open to, to all comers now maybe there's some special consideration about professional ethics there that might might factor in um but even for for people who think that 303 creative should lose this case most people are are unwilling to say well it's entirely up to the state that an anti-discrimination law could um, could have the effect of, of forcing the Jewish speechwriter to write a speech for the Klansman. Is that something we uh, 
we ought to worry about? Is that is there a principal think, distinction yeah. between that and others? I think that's directed to me. Uh, <laughs> I so uh, Colorado's position is that uh, you know there's lots of uh, businesses that do not hold themselves as open to the public, open to anybody, and that avowedly uh, you know pick their clients. Uh, you know there are photographers who uh, you know they're they don't generally advertise where available to anybody, uh, and so they're not covered by the law. And so the question is, you know, suppose that you did that. Well, I, I'm going to go back to Casey's point and say you know, there's uh, it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen because uh, you, know, you could not make an economy function in that way. If there are people who provide personalized services who couldn't turn away clients because they're not a good fit. Uh, so it just makes no economic sense to do this. Nobody's done it. And, uh, you know, so uh yeah, I absolutely agree that it would be problematic. But, and I go back to the question of, uh, which is really the question in this case, the court's going to have to write an opinion. The opinion's going to have to make some sense. And so we're going to have to know what counts as expressive, who counts as an artist, to uh, use the uh, court's terms. And you know, I really need an answer to that. One of the questions that a court legitimately takes into account is you, know, you want workable rules. I mean, a rule of law that just tells everyone, do the right thing. Who could object to that? You don't want to do the wrong thing, do you? But it's not workable as a rule of law. Well, I'll give one example, I think, where the, the court has upheld uh, the, the, uh, something like an all-comers sort of rule that was in the Christian Legal Society versus Martinez mm -hmm. case, which uh, the court has largely memory hold and pretended it didn't really happen. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it did happen uh, mm -hmm. in, in 2010. And that's, uh, that's a case where the court basically said, look, uh, they, well, they, they took as a, the, uh, the stipulation that UC Hastings didn't just require uh, law student uh, organizations not to discriminate on basic mm -hmm. categories, but said we also we we require every law student organization to to have everyone as a leader, no matter mm -hmm. who they are, uh, mm -hmm. no exclusions, uh, and even said that that even means that, uh, for example, the Black Law Students Association in deposition, the Black Law Students Association uh, must have uh, must agree to allow the white supremacist. Uh, to be a leader in the Black Law Students Association. Um, I think perhaps for good reason, there have been a lot of changes on the, on, in personnel on the court. It was a 5-4 decision at the time. I don't think the case is decided the same way now, but I think it does point to a potential for uh, the sort of constant expansion of public accommodations or the kind of mentality of public accommodations you know, I think ADF had pointed to 19 jurisdictions, like I said before, that have political uh, in in their non-discrimination requirements. Um, now you've got, again, like uh, Florida and Texas and conservative states looking to say, well, maybe we can use this, but use it against social media platforms. Uh, I think there's, there's going to be an increasing uh, tendency for governments to say, well, let's just uh, address this problem by calling it uh, discrimination and adding in uh, factors into the non-discrimination uh, requirements that will deal with it. So, I, you know, I think Professor Koppelman is concerned, uh, perhaps rightly, about a really broad opinion that doesn't sort of cab it on the other side. I'm concerned about if the court didn't decide this case for 303 Creative, um, you know, just, just where does the government know that it has a limit on just how much it can compel? 
And right now, I don't think there's uh, much guidance from the court telling them. That well, the, the court made clear in Christian legal society that if uh, instead of governing a university internally governing itself, if you had a statute that said that all organizations have to take all comers, that would clearly be unconstitutional. And the court said that in Christian legal society. So let me ask a, kind of the flip side and direct it primarily to, to Casey. But Andrew, of course, if you wanted to uh, jump in, uh, we'd welcome that. But what what kind of First Amendment interest is there in the template, the plug and play website, the one that's that at least is arguably analogous to the speech in in uh, fair, where we just say we're going to tell you the time and place of the wedding, just like we're going to tell you the time and place of the interview. Um, or relatedly, what's the First Amendment free speech interest in the person who is speaking a message, but whose message will likely be attributed to somebody else? So the web designer who posts the website that says our story when the hour is understood to be the uh, the the people participating in the wedding and not the person who developed the website. Well, there's a, there's a couple of questions there, and I think we've got four minutes, so I don't want to. But um, but I think the you know I think so. First of all, I think the I, I think the plug and play question is actually the the way the court will deal with that is to say, well, that's not in front of us. We don't we're not asked to deal with that. We're we're interpreting the stipulation saying that we're dealing with custom design to mean that we don't have to get to the plug and play question, and they'll sort of draw the line there between. Uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, those non-custom and uh, and custom services, um, but I you know I think uh, you know first of all I think that you know the argument from from Kristen Wagner and the argument was look there is uh, the, even the same words can convey different meanings in different contexts, and so I, I think there is a a free speech interest uh, there that if you're you know. Uh, Saying, I mean, even you know, in this case, just the mere fact that this is a a marriage, right? Um, that conveys different things uh, in in two different contexts, at least according to the to the people who are challenging this. So, uh, I think there is a free speech interest there. It is harder. I completely agree. I think there's a more broadly a free exercise argument um, that will be raised by some of those questions. Um, you know, simply the being asked to participate in a, in a free exercise uh, context. The other thing I, I will say there quickly, too, is I think there's an establishment problem. I think there's an, a, a lurking establishment problem if, you know, maybe not in the in the website context, but, you know, imagine you're actually dealing with something where the, the person actually needs to be present in a church for a wedding services for service in order to provide that service. You could actually have a problem if uh, the, the government is trying to compel people to be present uh, at a religious service uh, because they've held themselves out uh, to the public uh, and, and saying, we will fine you, we will prohibit you from, from declining that service. I think you actually start running into some establishment clause problems as well. Now I think that you have reached the person who delivers the chairs because they actually have to physically enter the wedding venue and then they have to uh, be there afterward. The caterer uh, you know, has to stand by the chafing dish all through the wedding uh, and you know, just make sure that the sterno doesn't go out. Uh, so uh, you know, uh, the limitations of the claim are uh, the, I keep, the concern I keep coming back to. And I take it you you would think that if the court takes uh, 
follows Casey's idea and uses the stipulations as a way of saying we don't need to address the uh, the point about how much speech is involved here because this person is stipulated to be creative. You would take that to be a, a cop out that avoids the most important question of the case. Well, it, it, uh, it's worse than a cop out because it gives lower courts a standard that uh, with no guidance as to how to apply it. If uh, the caterer is artistic in arranging uh, the stuff, or even if the person who puts out the chairs puts them out in an interesting and creative way, is that enough? Uh, you know, lots of people exercise creativity in lots of ways. Uh, so I'm worried about an opinion that uh, creates random holes in anti-discrimination law and nobody can tell where the holes are. Well, thank you both very, very much for your comments today and your time. It's been a pleasure to uh, to be part of this program with you. And thank you again to the to the Federalist Society. You want to uh, wrap things up for us? Absolutely. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We welcome listener feedback at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, please keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about other upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We're adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.